Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. The former president of the United States is a free man. He can go anywhere he chooses. And today he chose to attend his civil fraud trial in New York City. This is weaponization of justice. This is something that nobody's ever seen to this extent. It's called election interference. It's a sad day for our country that a thing like this can take place. I'm sitting in a courthouse instead of being in Iowa, where I should be. Again, no one compelled Mr. Trump to be in that courthouse today. He could have gone to Iowa. I mean, he has a private plane. He could have gone to both Iowa and New York if he had wanted. But Donald Trump came to New York because he likes to use his trials as soapboxes for his presidential campaign. And the biggest one of all, the biggest soapbox of them all, is the federal trial over alleged 2020 election subversion, which is set to take place in March of next year, right as campaign season is in full swing. And and that would set up a dynamic, a split screen, if you will, that no one in this country has ever seen before. The New York Times today reports that Trump's D.C. trial would almost certainly fuse Trump's role as a criminal defendant with his role as a presidential candidate. It would transform the steps of the federal courthouse into a site for daily impromptu campaign rallies. And it would place the legal case and the race for the White House on a direct collision course, each one increasingly capable of shaping the other. That's sort of what we saw today here in New York City, the the beta test of that dynamic. But there is a very live question right now as to whether that case even goes to trial before the 2024 election. Because while Donald Trump may enjoy the spectacle of a campaign rally on the courthouse steps, he is very much still doing everything in his power to avoid becoming a convicted criminal. And today, Trump's lawyers made a significant attempt to delay his D.C. federal trial, a move that may very well end up succeeding. As we have been covering on this show in recent days, Trump has been trying to get this case thrown out on the grounds that he is immune from prosecution for anything he did as president. In Trump's mind, the presidency is a shield against nearly everything. But the judge here, Judge Tanya Chutkin, rejected that argument last week in a forceful ruling. She wrote, defendants four year service as commander in chief did not bestow on him the divine right of kings to evade criminal accountability that governs his fellow citizens. But today, Trump is appealing that ruling, saying he wants a higher court to weigh in on that same question. And importantly, he is asking Judge Chutkin to freeze all further proceedings in this case until that issue is resolved. Now, last night, we told you about these jury selection forms that have already gone out in the mail to potential jurors in Washington, D.C. But if Trump succeeds in pausing this case, there will be no jury selection in the near future. No jury selection, no pretrial motions, no disclosures about trial strategies, all of that machinery, all that very necessary and time-consuming preparation 
would come to a grinding halt, which would inevitably have the effect of delaying the trial itself. But Trump may also have another goal in mind. Trump could try to appeal his presidential immunity defense all the way to the Supreme Court, where he presumably hopes that the conservative majority, a third of whom were appointed by Donald Trump himself, that they would rule in his favor. What the Supreme Court would actually do here is anyone's guess. If they rule in Trump's favor, then the case is over. Kaput. But if they rule against Trump, then Judge Chutkin would have a choice to make. Getting the high court to issue a ruling would likely delay this case for weeks or even months. And so then Judge Chutkin would have to decide whether to hold the proceeding during the heart of campaign season. Such a move would no doubt prompt furious outbursts from Mr. Trump, who would be obligated to be in courtroom every day and not campaigning. So that tantrum slash pep rally you saw today, the outbursts we have all seen for weeks outside Mr. Trump's fraud trial in New York, those would become a daily occurrence in the middle of an election. Or Judge Shutkin could forego that entirely. She could defer to the political calendar and decide it was too fraught to put a candidate on trial, <coughs> excuse me, with the election looming. <coughs> Sorry. Joining me now are Mimi Rocco, Westchester County DA, <coughs> and former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. I'm going to take a brief pause to drink some water. Also with us, Mark Joseph Stern, a senior writer covering the courts at Slate. Mark, I'm going to go to you right now so that I can continue to cough and ask you what your assessment is about how long the D.C. Circuit Court may take to adjudicate this issue. You know, it really all depends on what panel of judges takes this case, and it's randomly assigned. There are four Republican-appointed judges on the D.C. Circuit who have shown some inclination toward running interference for Trump uh, to varying degrees. And if two of those judges land on this panel, that panel can really draw out the process. You know, they can take quite a long time to hear the case, issue a decision. Uh, In past appeals to the D.C. Circuit, these cases have usually just by chance gone to liberal panels, which have worked really quickly to expedite the process and get an answer out fast because they don't want to delay justice. But if this does land in the hands of conservative judges on that court, we could be waiting for months and months until we get a decision. And all that time, Judge Chuckin's proceedings would almost certainly be stayed. Mimi, Mimi, it feels like there are very few good options here. What, what is the best case scenario as you see this appeals process take flight, as it were? Um, I think the best case scenario is, as, as Mark alluded to, that they, that the Court of Appeals rules quickly. And I'm gonna, this may sound a little bit naive, but I'm, I'm gonna say it. I mean, this, this is a motion that any lawyer would file. I am, I have said many times, we've talked many times about Trump using appeals as a delay tactic. This is a real issue that they have a absolute, it makes sense that they're appealing it. Um, it's not frivolous. Yeah. Um, I don't think ultimately on the merits he will win. And I think it's important that the court of appeals that he is appealing to has already ruled on this in the civil context and said he does not have immunity. Now, civil and yeah. criminal are very different. I think there's a decent argument, a good a, one way of thinking about it, though, is that actually in the criminal context, you would a court would be less likely to give immunity than in a civil one because in a civil case, civil anyone can file right, a civil exactly. case, right? And they don't want that open that floodgates. Criminal cases, as we have seen in history, against 
a sitting president or former sitting president are very rare. So I think there is a good chance that the Court of Appeals can rule quickly and get this moving. What happens at the Supreme Court yeah. is a bigger unknown. Um, but again, they have deferred on other cases related to Trump and just, you know, some summarily affirmed the Court of Appeals and not wanted to weigh into this. This is a more important legal question. So we will have to see. I, I you know, Mark, when we talk about the Supreme Court, it is a big question mark, which I think surprises some people that have seen other positions this court has taken on important conservative matters. What is your expectation here about who might be the the who are the allies that Trump might have on the high court? Is it Justice Thomas? Is it Justice Kavanaugh? Is it is it more than the two of them? I mean, who do you think would be most sympathetic to his argument here? So, look, we've seen time and again that Justice Thomas almost always votes with Donald Trump when he takes some case to the Supreme Court seeking to thwart a subpoena or uh, an indictment or any kind of lawsuit. You know, Justice Thomas is there walking arm in arm with him. Uh, and to a lesser degree, so is Justice Alito. And, and both of them have expressed uh, views that they really do think that this president and former president now uh, is under this kind of unfair assault that treats him almost illegitimately, uh, and that they feel some kind of independent obligation as the third branch to, to stand up to that. Uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch are, are more interesting. They have indicated some concern for uh, protecting the president from invasive lawsuits. The criminal question remains very much open. And as Mimi alluded to, it, it's, it's a very different case. It's not one that the Supreme Court ever dealt with squarely when Trump was president, when it really did try to dodge these issues. So one thing that I think is important to understand about this appeal is that it goes to Judge Chutkin's jurisdiction to hear this case, right? It goes to the question of whether she even has the power to carry on here or whether Trump is completely immune and so the entire case has to be thrown out. I think the gravity of that question, it's so different from can this evidence be introduced? Can this witness testify? This is the whole deal right here. And I think the gravity of that will give some of the justices pause and make them want to take on this case and really hear full arguments, full briefing and issue a decision on the merits. That could take until June, at which point it might really be too late for a trial. So, you know, even if Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch ultimately come out against Trump on this question, they might think it's serious enough that they want to take it under consideration. And that alone could be enough to run out the clock. Right, right. By by dint of the fact that they're taking it up, it is an inherently pro-Trump move, or at least in terms of his defense strategy. Mimi, I mean, the Supreme Court, we all remember Bush v. Gore, took like a day for them to issue their opinion on that. Is there any chance, I mean, Mark just said June, if the Supreme Court decides to take this up, and I'm assuming that's the expedited calendar. Well, because that's when they normally do come down with their decisions. But I, you know, look, this is a different scenario. This is an interlocutory appeal. There is an indictment pending. There is a trial calendar set. There are jurors. Even a partisan Supreme Court, even a partisan justice, if they have any shred of institutional respect for the court system, mm. has to recognize that this isn't something they can wait six months on, I don't think. It, it should be an expedited appeal. It, it, because it's not like Bush v. Gore where it's about the election. It's about a pending criminal indictment where jurors have already been called. And I, I do think, you know. Well, I mean, it is about the 2024 election, too, in some ways, well, right? Yes, there is the, yes, the, the thinking yes, I mean, that the American public should have 
some conclusion Ab- to all absolutely. of this. Yeah. I mean, there's those arguments as well. But but also, I do think there's a decent argument that the, we're going to have to see the briefing and how Judge uh, Chutkin rules, whether she can even proceed now with the case. And I want to talk about that because there are sort of parallel uh, hurdles here. There's the, the ultimate question of whether or not he has the immunity. But, Mark, there's the question of whether Trump can grind everything to a halt. I think it was very interesting that Judge Chuck can move forward with the jury selection process. I think those letters went out at the end of last week or this week, almost a signal of like, hey, look, the work is starting. We need to get this underway. This is all the machinery of justice is cranking along. Um, what do you think the likelihood is that a, a stay he, he is granted here and all of the preparations for this March 4th trial grind to a halt? I think it's quite unlikely that Judge Chuckin would grant such a sweeping stay. Uh, a more limited stay is within the realm of possibility. But uh, Trump's lawyers are arguing here that there is a, a mandatory freeze on all proceedings as soon as they even file the appeal. So uh, Trump's lawyers say, hey, we're, we're going to the D.C. Circuit now. Judge Chuckin, by law, you must stop everything you're doing. And they, they make that argument based on a, a five to four decision last term written by Justice Kavanaugh. That really doesn't say any of that. It was a, a narrow decision involving arbitration, not a criminal trial. So uh, it's it's pretty much a Hail Mary argument that they're making here. Uh, and Judge Chuckin has not shown a lot of tolerance for that. So I don't think that she'll be playing along here. But of course, as we've discussed uh, for several minutes now, you know, once this gets in the hands of the D.C. Circuit, once it gets in the hands of the Supreme Court, higher courts almost always stay these proceedings once they're considering a question. And so it's still depends way more on who's handling this in the courts above than what Judge Chuckin decides to do here. Right. That's the point, is that Judge Chuckin, it seems sort of comic that she, comical that she would be deciding on the stay given where she is on the immunity appeal to begin with. He could appeal that. It could go to the D.C. Circuit and then also to the Supreme Court. The Circuit Court has been remarkably generous, if you will, in, in issuing these stays, even on the gag order. It returned to the status quo, which was Donald Trump was ungagged and continued to make inflammatory, dangerous comments about court officials when he was ungagged. This is less immediately perilous to any person. So could they actually say, yes, you can stop everything while we decide on the appeal? I I, I mean, I will be very interested to see uh, the government's response to the motion because, um, yeah, I mean, I think when you have an appeal, there is a certain... Um, jurisdictional element here that, okay, the appeal is happening now. You, you can't go forward. I, I do agree with Mark. She, there could be a more limited stay. Um, it doesn't mean that jury, I mean, the jury selection process here is going to take forever. forever. So that's why she started it. Maybe that can continue because that doesn't involve the parties. There are maybe certain uh, ways. I mean, this is also unprecedented that, that it's hard to know. But I will say the D.C. Circuit has also been pretty remarkably fast. Um, they're, 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 that's not unusual for them. And they have continued that in this. So, so that, uh, I think is, is hopeful. Well, there are a lot of, what is, I'm not one to quote Donald Rumsfeld, but known unknowns really applicable in this case. Mimi Roca, Mark Joseph Stern, thank you both for your expertise and your wisdom in unpacking all of this. I appreciate it. We have lots more ahead tonight. You have heard the alarm bells ringing all week about Donald Trump's revenge plans. Should he win reelection? And now we have a look at all the tools at his disposal if he gets back into the White House. But first, tinfoil hat January 6th revisionism is in full swing from the federal courthouse 
to the Republican presidential primary. We'll have more on that coming up next. Are you struggling to lower your bad LDL cholesterol, even though you may be taking a statin, swapping steaks for salads, and exercising while listening to this podcast? Ask your doctor if Repatha Evolocumab is right for you. With Repatha, you can dramatically reduce bad cholesterol and the risk of another heart attack while enjoying life, too, because you're human. And with convenient self-administration, you can take Repatha in the comfort of your own home. Do not take Repatha if you're allergic to it. Repatha can cause serious allergic reactions. Signs include trouble breathing or swallowing, or swelling of the face. Most common side effects include runny nose, sore throat, common cold symptoms, flu or flu-like symptoms, back pain, high blood sugar and redness, pain, or bruising at the injection site. Visit Repatha.com or call 1-844-REPATHA. Talk to your doctor today about Repatha. Hey parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. Today, Alan Hostetter, a former California police chief turned January 6th rioter, was sentenced to 11 years in federal prison for his role in the attack on the Capitol. During his sentencing, uh, Hostetter launched into a rant after federal prosecutors referred to him as a poster child for January 6th conspiracy theories. In response, Mr. Hostetter told the court that he felt like he was living in a parallel universe and that he believed the Capitol insurrection was a setup by the CIA the FBI, and the Department of Homeland Security. His source for that was this guy. Why am I the only person on the stage, at least, who can say that January 6th now does look like it was an inside job? That the 2020 election was indeed stolen by big tech? That the 2016 election, the one that Trump won for sure, was also one that was stolen from him by the national security establishment? <laughs> Vivek Ramaswamy is unbelievably, but somehow also not surprisingly, not the only Republican to embrace the January 6th tinfoil hat theory. In a recent court filing, lawyers for Donald Trump revealed that he plans to make January 6th conspiracy theories part of his defense in the federal 2020 election interference case. As proof, Trump's legal team has asked the Justice Department for all documents regarding individuals like Ray Epps a Trump supporter who has been the target of right-wing attacks, falsely claiming that Epps was an undercover agent and that January 6th was a false flag event. Joining us now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer at The Atlantic. Mark, <clears throat> thank you for being here. As we watch the most outlandish theories take a strong foothold in the Republican Party, and I as we, I think there's been a lot of discussion this week about how to stop the madness— and in particular, if the toothpaste can be put back into the tube with some of the more extreme positions of the GOP here. And I wonder when you have someone like Vivek Ramaswamy saying that stuff on the national stage as he's one of four candidates, leading candidates running for the Republican nomination, you see in real time the effect that has. Can the toothpaste be put back in the tube? 
Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Vivek Ramaswamy at this late date, you know, just a few weeks before the Iowa caucuses, is still up on that stage. Now, it seems like a lot of people, including a lot of Republicans, are tuning him out, which I think is probably a good thing. But obviously, as we saw from from those legal proceedings in California, um, you know, people listen to this stuff. People believe it. And, and the fact is, you know, for the last seven years, that this has been coming from the most powerful, most vocal, um, visible figure in the Republican Party, Donald Trump. I mean, he is the conspiracy theorist in chief um, in the party. And it's obviously trickled down a great deal. And for as long as that that continues, there will be a market for someone like that. I would like to think that as people move closer to actually thinking about who they're going to vote for, people might take this more seriously. I think if, in fact, someone raises some of these conspiracy theories in a court, um, you know, it probably won't get a very, you know, a very serious consideration from a judge. So I have a feeling, you know, as a legal defense, that's not going to work very much. But the fact is, I mean, if you look at polls about what Republican voters believe, um, it, it's quite often very much out of touch with, with the reality of things on the ground. Yeah, I mean, and it, it's not just out of touch, but like way in another universe, not just yeah. January 6th was a peaceful, peaceful gathering. January 6th being an inside job is now a, a position that someone who wants to hold the highest office in the land is publicly staking out on a debate stage. There has been some talk and uh, calls, if you will, from both Democrats and Republicans alike that more <laughs> Republicans need to raise their hands and call out fellow Republicans for being liars. Um, I want to play some sound from Chris Christie last night, and this is what he had to say on the topic of Donald Trump. I look at my watch now. We're 17 minutes into this debate, and except for your little speech in the beginning, we've had these three acting as if the race is between the four of us. The fifth guy, who doesn't have the guts to show up and stand here, he's the one who, as you just put it, is way ahead in the polls. And yet, I've got these three guys who are all seemingly to compete um, with, you know, Voldemort. He who shall not be named. Um, Mark, there's been um, a supposition that if one prominent Republican called out Trump, that more would surely join him. So far, Chris Christie is very lonely in this job. Um, how and when does this dynamic change, if ever? Oh, I don't think it's going to change. I mean, at least certainly through this election cycle. I mean, I was thinking, I mean, Chris Christie is probably not going to win the Republican nomination. I mean, he's not getting a lot of traction in the polls. I mean, at least he's getting on the stage. I do think that despite, you know, some calls that he drop out and, and maybe endorse someone like Nikki Haley, who might have a better chance of beating Trump. I mean, I do think he, he is playing a valuable role as a reality check, you know, in these debates, you know, in, in given what his message has been. It's probably not going to be a winning message, but it's extremely important, you know, in the same way that, you know, there there have been truth tellers in the Republican Party. I mean, Liz Cheney's book is, you know, number one on the Amazon list now. I mean, there are a lot of people who are making very responsible arguments, whether in journalism and politics, presidential candidates in the case of, of Christie. But ultimately, I mean, he was saying his point is that that the people who actually could beat Donald Trump, namely Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley, look essentially like they're playing for second place at this point because they're nowhere near Trump in the polls. And they don't seem to be making much of an effort to um, to try to, you know you know, creep into his lead at all. So I think that's sort of where we are. And I think it's probably very useful for Christie to point that out. 
Can we talk really quickly about Nikki Haley? Because there's been some talk, especially this week after her debate performance yesterday and with her endorsement from the Koch machine, uh, as in the Koch brothers, (laughs) that she may be the last best hope for a uh, not Trump candidate in in the general. Do you think you're going to see more Democrats? And I'm thinking now of Reid Hoffman, the Democratic donor who's giving money to Nikki Haley's campaign. But Democrats and centrist Republicans trying to rally support around her as the the best option to stave off a potential Trump presidency. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't think Democratic money, especially when you know news of Democratic money and even the Koch brothers is going to really move the needle as far as public opinion in her direction. Um, the fact is, though, I mean, I think she's run a really good race. I think she's run a much better race than DeSantis. I think DeSantis, you know, her hope is that she can kind of knock him out uh, before South Carolina and she'll have a clear shot at Trump, you know, once the first two states are behind them. Uh, ultimately, though, I mean, Haley doesn't seem to be playing to win just yet. I mean, I would be very curious to see if she has something in her that will really actually, you know, run against Donald Trump. I think right now, you know, she's sort of done the safe, oh, he's the chaos candidate. Um, I liked his administration. I liked what he did policy-wise, but, you know, we need new blood. I mean, she's using all the safe code words and sort of code terms and, and really not going after him, certainly the way Christie is. Now, I mean, I don't, I don't know if she has another move in her. And, and ultimately, if her, her goal here is to either play for second place or position herself for 2000 and, uh, what is it, 28. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll see. I mean, it, it, right now, I mean, she's run a good race, but I don't think it's going to get her beyond second place. All right. Well, from your words to, I don't know, Nikki Haley's ears, Mark Leibovich of The Atlantic, always good to see you, my friend. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Alex. We have much more to get to this evening, but we first have a little programming note for you. Tomorrow night on this program, we will bring you a special report from inside New York City's storied Roosevelt Hotel. Now, if you don't know what the Roosevelt is, it is the city's main intake center as of this year for thousands of homeless migrants. It has become a symbol of the ongoing nationwide fight over immigration. Over 100,000 people have come to this city. The solution is not just New York City. The solution is the United States. Secretary Mayorkas announced temporary protection for hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans. These migrants will be able to apply for work permits. Sin papel no puedes hacer nada. Let them work. Let them work. We know they come from prisons. We know they're terrorists. It's poisoning the blood of our country. We are here because they came here and they helped build this city. It's an extraordinarily complicated and important topic. We're going to be airing our exclusive report tomorrow night. Stay with us. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. One of former President Trump's most common refrains is that the Department of Justice is rigged, that has been weaponized against him by President Biden. Well, tonight, President Biden's adult son has been indicted by federal prosecutors for nine tax-related charges in the state of California. Three of those charges are felony tax offenses. Six are misdemeanors. All of them are for the tax years between 2016 and 2019, during which the special counsel, in this case, alleges that Hunter Biden willfully failed to pay his taxes on time. Hunter Biden has since paid all of the back taxes and fines for those years. But the core allegation remains that he willfully did not pay them for years when he could have. If convicted, Mr. Biden faces a maximum penalty of up to 17 years in prison, although actual sentences are typically well below the maximum. These new charges in California come on top of the gun charges that Hunter Biden is already facing in Delaware. And you would think that the president's son being federally indicted multiple times would be evidence of how even handed the Justice Department is being here. But prepare yourselves for a conservative onslaught using the Hunter Biden charges to draw false equivalence between the relatively minor crimes that Biden's son is being charged with and the grave abuses of power the former president is accused of, while also claiming that the whole system is rigged against conservatives and only conservatives. These new charges also mean that the already unprecedented 2024 presidential campaign calendar will get even more complicated. Donald Trump has his D.C. election interference case scheduled for March and his Georgia election interference case penciled in for a potential August start date. And now there may also be two trials of President Biden's son happening in the heart of election season. Expect wall-to-wall coverage of Hunter Biden's legal troubles on conservative media from now until Election Day. We have no idea what kind of conservative media coverage is planned for Donald Trump's legal troubles. When we come back, Donald Trump has a lot of options to make a lot of unprecedented moves should he win back the White House. Barton Gelman from The Atlantic joins me to discuss coming right up next. Donald Trump has made no secret of his plans should he end up back in the White House after the 2024 election and criminal investigations into his actions before, during and after the 2020 election and use federal resources to investigate and prosecute his political enemies. But as The Atlantic's Barton Gelman writes in How Trump Gets Away With It, the important question is how much of that agenda he could actually carry out in a second term. And the answer is apparently a lot. When it comes to those criminal investigations of either himself or his political enemies, only tradition, not binding law, prevents the president and his political appointees from issuing orders to the FBI about its investigations. There is little to stop Trump from firing special counsel Jack Smith. He may be removed for misconduct, dereliction of duty, incapacity, conflict of interest, or for other good cause. No law would prevent Trump from ordering that the charges against him be dropped. 
He could do so even with a trial in progress right up to the moment before a jury returned a verdict. Trump will be able to avoid going to prison even if he has already been convicted of federal charges before he is sworn in. A trial judge is unlikely to order Trump imprisoned even after sentencing before he exhausts his appeals. And there is no plausible scenario in which that happens before Inauguration Day. At any time while Trump's appeals are pending, his Justice Department may notify the appellate court that the prosecution no longer wishes to support his conviction. The effect, if the court grants the request, is to vacate a conviction. So that's what he'd like to do and how he'd go about it. But then the question is, who exactly will do Donald Trump's bidding so that he can get all of that done? Barton Gelman has a few ideas about that as well. He joins me now. Barton Gelman, staff writer at The Atlantic and senior fellow at the Century Foundation, author of the most terrifying pieces about the what ifs I have ever read. Um, this one is no exception. Barton, you ha- have talked about in the piece the way in which Trump may able to get be able to get some of the most, and this is euphemistic, unsavory characters in Trump land into the highest offices, uh, cabinet level positions because there's an interesting kind of workaround in, in, in federal law. Can you talk a little bit about how you would manage to get someone like, oh, I don't know, Stephen Miller named uh, Secretary of Homeland Security? So you have to start off by thinking, like, who could be confirmed by the Senate? Right. And of course, it depends who controls the Senate. Uh, but someone like Stephen Miller is sufficiently controversial Maybe he would have trouble even in in a Republican Senate. Mm -hmm. But that's not the end of the question, uh, because then there's the Vacancies Reform Act, which allows Trump, who loves acting appointments, uh, to appoint someone, uh, Secretary of Homeland Security or Attorney General, on an acting basis. Just a temporary fill-in forever. Uh, Just a temporary fill-in for, if it's at the beginning of the administration, it's 300-some days uh, if it's later in the administration, it's 200 some days, but uh, they can be re-upped. And in order to appoint someone, uh, in order to be qualified as an acting, that person has to either already be sitting in a Senate-confirmed position, mm-hmm. uh, and all the people who are Senate-confirmed will be the people who are serving under Biden. Right. When, so unlikely that he's going to use any of those folks. Except... There's a there's another little loophole here. There are probably about 100 Republicans who are in Senate confirmed positions under Joe Biden because there are all these boards like the National Labor Relations Board. Right. uh, That are required by law to be balanced by party. There have to be Democrats and Republicans. So there's some Republicans scattered about the Biden administration. But one would assume that those are not going to be they are not going to be sufficiently conservative for Donald Trump's purposes. Trump's people are looking. Uh. Do they have some MAGA people undercover already in the U.S. government? If not, they have to find someone who is uh, at least a GS-15 on the federal pay scale uh, who is in the So department. relatively senior, for those not familiar with what GS-15 connotes, you have to be a relatively senior administration official, and then you can occupy the position for 90 days. Is that right? Uh, you, you can... Uh, you have to have been in that. Sorry, you have position to have been in that position days. for ninety then days, and then you can be enacting right, for most of a year. Yeah, but th- so that's the workaround. That's you right. hire someone like Stephen Miller to work in a senior position for ninety days, and then he qualifies to be someone he can name. Trump can name as acting. I don't know, Attorney General, Secretary of Homeland Security. That is the workaround. 
Um, That is, I think, for people who have long thought Cash Patel will never be the director of the CIA. He'd never get past the Senate. A very compelling and to many eyes, I think, terrifying realization that there is, in fact, a workaround for something like that. Um, Can you talk a little bit about this piece is so exhaustive and well-researched, Barton, the ways in which Trump could avoid jail time, potentially, if convicted of federal crimes before Election Day, what exactly he would have to do to avoid that? So, as you said very correctly, uh, right up until the moment the jury delivers its verdict, the Justice Department could simply drop the case. Right. They could say, we interrupt these deliberations. You don't have to decide whether he's guilty. We're dropping the charge. Uh, If he's already convicted, uh, then the Justice Department makes what's called a confession of error. Uh, and says, uh, we've changed our mind. Uh, we are not going to oppose his appeal. We believe the charge, uh, the conviction should be vacated. Uh, nothing stops the Justice Department from doing that. Uh, and that's certainly what would happen if Trump were effectively running and running the Justice Department as he right. says he basically would be. Right. Uh, so that, that's a certainty. The, the harder question because like so many other things in the Trump world, it has never been resolved or litigated, is what would happen to state charges. Yes. Right. So suppose uh, he's in the middle of trial on the Georgia case uh, or uh, even has been convicted. Uh, the Justice Department will go to, to federal court and argue that it is unconstitutional for a lesser sovereign, the state of Georgia. Fonnie Willis. Fonnie Willis to attempt to imprison the chief executive of the United States because that would prevent the chief executive from doing his constitutionally required duties. And almost certainly the Supreme uh, Court, the court would say this has to go on pause until the end of the presidency. So that takes you to 2029. And indeed, Judge McAfee down in Georgia was asked when feasibly would be a good time to start this trial with Donald Trump. And they said, after he finishes out his second term in the year 2029. Barton Gellman, I think a lot of Democrats hope that the Trump team does not read this piece because there are a lot of directions and information about how to skirt the guardrails of democracy. It is compelling and terrifying. Thank you for for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Still ahead this evening, Texas law bans nearly all abortions with very limited exceptions. One pregnant woman went to court to challenge what those bans meant for her, and today she won. More on that story is coming up next. This morning in Texas, a district court judge granted an emergency motion allowing a woman to get an abortion. After 20 weeks of pregnancy, 31-year-old Kate Cox learned her fetus has a fatal abnormality. Her life and fertility were at risk. But Texas has a series of abortion bans that are so strict, with medical exemptions so narrow, that people like Kate Cox need to get a judge to approve life-saving abortions. So last week, Cox and her husband sued the state of Texas so that she could have the procedure. In the court hearing today, the Texas Attorney General's office argued that Ms. Cox does not qualify for a medical exemption under the state's abortion laws, but the judge disagreed, saying the idea that Ms. Cox desperately wants to be a parent and this law might actually cause her to lose that ability is shocking and would be a genuine miscarriage of justice. Experts expect Texas to appeal today's decision and what that means for Cox's abortion is unclear. In the meantime, Attorney General Paxton sent a letter 
to three Texas hospitals, warning that the judge's motion will not insulate you or anyone else from civil and criminal liability for violating Texas's abortion laws. It does not enjoin actions brought by private citizens. Joining me now is Erin Carmone, senior correspondent at New York Magazine. Erin, you're so indispensable in, in reporting on all of this. I wonder first what you make of the words from Ken Paxton, the AG, who seems to be threatening the bounty hunter law to prosecute anyone who might assist Ms. Cox with her abortion. There are so many restrictions on abortion in Texas. There are five different ones. Each one of them has different language about medical exemptions. It is hard to even understand which way he plans to prosecute. He also, I think that in the letter that he sent to the hospitals, he threatened felony prosecution. Yes. So there's all kinds of interwoven laws that are restricting both pregnant people and their providers. Now, I, I feel like we should step back. We, the reason that we have never seen a case like this, you and I were talking about this, it is extraordinary for someone who has an ongoing pregnancy who needs an abortion to actually go through this process, an adult begging a court to let her have a life-saving abortion, one that will, again, if she does not have it, harm her fertility and her health. Yes, um, the reason that that doesn't happen is that once that person is in front of a lawyer, usually that means that they can go out of state and they don't have to put themselves have the procedure. in exactly. So the Center for Reproductive Rights has a lawsuit with 22 women, some of whom had to give birth to a dying fetus, had to, one of them became, her arm became black with clotted blood because she was not able to get the care that she needed. But some of them were able to go to other states to get abortions. And I imagine that the same option is available to Kate Cox, but she's choosing to fight this fight in order to bring about justice, yes. one hopes. And also, look at what's happening. Look at the lengths to which Paxton Women, is going. Yes. The, courts, the court understands that this should qualify under any reasonable health exception. But even having gone through all of this process, the, the Texas attorney general wants to prosecute doctors for providing care that is going to provide the best outcome to their patient that their patient has chosen. The fact and, that and they want appealing. to go after doctors. And is presumably, presumably going to appeal this, appeal this. But they want to disobey a judge in order to force this woman to harm her health, to give birth to a fetus or baby that will live maybe painful hours. You know, uh, the bravery and the tenacity of Kate Cox in this moment to take her case to the courts to show America, to show Texas lawmakers what it means to impose these restric restrictions on pregnant people. She spoke to um, Nightly News this evening, and I just want to play a little bit of sound from Kate Cox reacting to this decision. I would ask to, you know, look at my situation and, you know, Maybe think about, you know, your wife or your sister, your daughter, and, you know, see the hurt. That, the, the, the ways in which the stories of these women have completely upended the, the political narrative that the conservative right wing has tried to establish. These are sisters, mothers, daughters, women like everyone else who are facing just unfathomable, unforeseen circumstances and need care. I mean, I just wonder what you think this does to the sort of political dynamic and the, and the, and the right's desire to outlaw abortion nationally. I think even the pro-choice side has been caught off guard just how many people have been ensnared in this. I mean, people who are going through challenging or difficult health circumstances in their pregnancies, they have enough to deal with. They don't need to be going to a lawyer. They don't need to be fighting a hospital board. But the fact that people have decided to speak up about this, talk to reporters, go to court, shows that they realize that this implicates their justice, their health, their, their liberty. And it's not rare. 
That's the other thing. It, you, I, I will say this, too. The bigger context here is that the anti-abortion movement thinks of exceptions as loopholes for funsies, that people, if the exceptions are too capacious, yes. that women will just line up and have abortion, like get out of pregnancy jail for free cards. Yes. And so they are intentionally making these exceptions as narrow as possible to try to make it so that you have to be at death's door. They do not accept a lethal fetal diagnosis as a reason for an exception. And they are willing to persecute this woman all the way to the hospital door to try to enforce that. And it's another fact, the battle isn't over. I just remember during the peak of the anti-Obamacare backlash and it was get the government out of my health care. And now you have literally the Texas attorney general telling a woman and her doctor that she can't have an abortion because he's decided the fetus in her uterus should be brought to term. It is unbelievable. Um, the level of, of um, violation uh, that is being visited upon these women. Irene Carmone, it is great to see you. Thank you for um, speaking so passionately and brilliantly about a topic that is, is absolutely wrenching. That is our show for this evening. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity set up chores, and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast.